I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. This week, instead of our usual interview, we've got a report from the front lines of the battle over the future of local news. On Tuesday afternoon, my colleague Meg Dalton attended a rally in Midtown Manhattan against Alden Global Capital, the owner of digital first media properties like the Denver Post. Journalists from all over the country traveled to the Lipstick Building on East 53rd Street here in Manhattan to air their grievances against the hedge fund, mainly focused on censorship and dramatic cutbacks. It was a visible and unified campaign against Alden, the culmination of months of anger and frustration from Digital First staffers. Then my colleagues Alex and John will stop by the studio to discuss the increasing relevance of cable news and the reaction to ta Coates' latest piece. Before we get into all that, here's Meg with a dispatch from the protests against Alden. George Kelly looks energized, despite his red-eye flight from Oakland, California. The East Bay Times reporter traveled 3,000 miles to deliver a message. Be proud of the work you do. Be proud of the communities you serve. Be ashamed of the people hundreds of feet above our heads, draining the lifeblood out of our coverage, draining the lifeblood out of our mastheads draining the lifeblood out of our communities. Kelly was one of 20 or so Digital First media employees who gathered outside the Alden Globe and Capital headquarters on Tuesday. Alden controls Digital First Media, the second largest newspaper chain in the country. The protesters chanted call and response battle cries like, What do we want? New owners! and also held cardboard posters with phrases like, Alden, get out of our news. Many of the Digital First newspapers remain profitable and even churn out Pulitzer-worthy coverage. Yet Alden continues to slash their budgets and their staff. The New York-based hedge fund has gutted its local newsrooms in recent months, like the East Bay Times, where Kelly covers breaking news. The shame is theirs. But down here on the streets, the pride is ours. Joe Rubino is proudly sporting a shirt that says News Matters in big, bold type. And on his head is a baseball cap with the Colorado flag on it. Rubino is a reporter at the Denver Post. He flew from his hometown to New York to publicly shame what some are calling a, quote, vulture fund. But he prefers another metaphor. This company is a parasite. It infects things that are living and it drains them uh, for its own benefit and nothing else. Rubino says Alden's recent actions are a slap in the face to readers and also a disservice to the industry. Uh, They fear a free press and they do not belong in the business at all. Tuesday's protest was the culmination of a weeks-long campaign by Denver Post staffers and their supporters to hold Alden accountable. It all started last month when The Post published an editorial package calling for the hedge fund to sell the paper or change its business practices. Then, an editor at another digital-first property, the Boulder Daily Camera, was fired on April 25th after he self-published a critical editorial of Alden's actions. 
The turmoil continued last week when Chuck Plunkett, the Post's editorial page editor, resigned after Digital First rejected yet another editorial criticizing its actions. Plunkett's departure caused a ripple effect. Two senior editors, plus the Post's former owner, Dean Singleton, departed the company in protest. And in an open letter on Monday, 55 of Post staffers decried unconscionable censorship by the Alden-controlled Digital First media. The hedge fund declined to comment for this story. Thomas Peel is an investigative reporter with the Bay Area News Group. The California publisher lost 40 people in a cutback earlier this year. We're already thin that time. It felt like there was not a lot of bodies left to go in our newsrooms. The loss devastated its news coverage. A year ago, Peel and some colleagues picked up a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the ghost ship fire in Oakland. They've experienced three staff reductions since. And the cuts keep coming for Digital First newspapers. Neiman Labs' Ken Doctor says Alden is planning another round of cuts, somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 percent for the Denver Post. The worst thing about Mr. Freeman and Mr. Smith is they don't understand what they own. A newspaper and its associated platforms in the digital age are a public trust. And they ignore that. They ignore the responsibility that the Constitution gives them. Peel is referring to Heath Freeman and Randall Smith, two of Alden's top executives. Patricia Doxey has worked at the Daily Freeman in upstate New York for 30 years. She says Alden hasn't invested in its newspapers. Instead, they've done the exact opposite. For more than 100 years, we were the definitive source of news for Ulster County. Then Alden Global Capital got its hooks in us. Now we're a shell of a newspaper we once were. Where we once had more than a dozen reporters, we have six. We used to have investigative reporting. That's now non-existent. We cover a fraction of the news we used to, and there are days when we can't even get reporters out to cover breaking news. Up until now, Digital First employees have attacked Alden's business decisions through tweets, scathing editorials, and open letters. Tuesday's rally was different. Frustrated yet empowered, they took their efforts offline to Alden's doorsteps with help from the News Guild Communications Workers of America. Three hours later, a second contingency gathered 2,000 miles away at the Denver Post's printing plant in Adams County. It was a unified front in two different cities. Fifteen minutes into the protest, a small group breaks off. They walk through the revolving door and into the lobby of Alden's headquarters. They want to personally deliver a letter to Alden's executives. But they didn't have the chance today. Security forced them out within minutes. Instead, they're taking the more traditional route and mailing the petition. A few minutes later, the protesters disband, and in Terminator-worthy fashion chant, We'll be back! We'll be back! We'll be back! We'll be back! Okay, turning to our roundtable, I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, Alex Neeson and John Alsup. Great to have you guys. What's up? Hey. So a lot of news this past week, perhaps more so than usual, has been driven by cable news. 
Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's newest lawyer, kicked things off by telling an apparently shocked Sean Hannity that President Trump had reimbursed Michael Cohen for payments made to Stormy Daniels. And meanwhile, Daniel's attorney, Michael Avenatti, continued his ubiquitous appearances on cable, revealing Tuesday that Cohen had been paid by a company controlled by a Russian oligarch with ties to Vladimir Putin. Well, Avenatti and Giuliani are both on this kind of self-confessed media management tour, right? Like, I think Giuliani said a couple of days ago or maybe maybe last week that he was he was sort of doing all of this on purpose as this attempt to kind of like seize the media cycle and, and take control of it. Clearly, there is an aggressive new strategy on the part of Trump's legal team, which now contains him, um, to go out there and, well, I mean, honestly, I don't really understand the strategy, but, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know. But you assume there is one? <laughs> well, I think, I think, I think there is. Uh, and Avenatti, I mean, he certainly has a strategy. Avenatti said Tuesday, you know, I think someone asked him on one of the cable networks, you know, is this kind of a deliberate attempt by you to control the pace of this news cycle? And he said, yeah, and it's working. And it 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 undoubtedly is. is. He's been everywhere basically since the the Stormy Daniels news broke um, back when the Wall Street Journal reported it. And then Avenatti began representing her. He's done an amazing job keeping this story in the news and occasionally breaking news before journalists even get there. I mean, it's interesting to see stuff that normally happens behind the scenes, the idea of like uh, public relations fixers like that. All, all that stuff is supposed to happen away from view such that, you know, readers or people watching the news don't know that it's happening. But now it's happening like all out in the open. And I wonder whether other people are like taking notes because it's worked so well. And I wonder whether I mean, people ought to be. <laughs> they definitely should be. I think this also brings up the bigger issue of the role cable news is currently playing. Obviously, it's been around now for a while. Fox News especially has been incredibly influential in shaping the Republican Party as we know it. But with the president watching TV every day for many hours, tweeting about it, um, there seems to be this, as Shep Smith called it, a concerted effort to get people on television speaking directly to him. And then Avenatti has taken it to a different level by, you know, speaking directly to the American public, not waiting on reporters necessarily to get his viewpoints out there, but driving the news cycle all on his own. And this to me just seems like uh, an increased relevance of cable news. Yeah, I read in, uh, you know, one of the many newsletters I have to read for my job um, that uh, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, has not gone on Fox and Friends to talk about the Iran nuclear deal as if that was like a conscious decision she had made. Like, oh, well, you know, I could go on Fox and Friends, but I'm I'm not going to do that because because Macron and Emmanuel Macron, the French president, went on Fox. Boris Johnson, the, the UK foreign secretary, also went on Fox, both of them to extol the, the benefits of the of the well now scrapped from a US point of view Iran deal. Um, so clearly, like this is now a platform that world leaders see as an opportunity to get the ear of the president of the United States, as opposed to just, you know, people like Sean Hannity, which is extremely interesting. I do think with Avenatti and Giuliani, though, it does draw out a kind of limitation of being able to go on cable news and push your agenda, which is that Avenatti is clearly going on the offensive against Trump, right, on on Stormy Daniels and Hmm. probably his own behalf. Giuliani really should be playing the defense. I think he's tried to go out on the offense, but that hasn't really worked because the only way you can go on the offense on cable news is say something shocking enough to drive the cycle, which when you're someone's attorney, you don't necessarily want to be doing. So I think it's interesting. Yes, you're, you're clearly right that cable news is this forum for, for grabbing Trump's attention. But I don't think it's like this kind of 
forum that's completely devoid of any structure. There are real things that drive a cable news cycle, and if your narrative plays into that, like Avenatti's does, then you you know can really exploit it. But I think there are there are limitations to to the form. It's kind of a weird role reversal, isn't it? Like where Avenatti sort of just takes his news straight to TV, and then like heads of state instead of doing this, what I assume is like the the way you do it when you lead a country, Diplo- <laughs> diplomacy. Like, diplomacy is right. like going on Fox and Friends in in lieu of like a meeting with Donald Trump. It's kind of a strange flip flop. What what's interesting, isn't it? Because Macron had that whole week with him or well, maybe not a week but you know they, they spent a lot of time in each other's company and by all accounts they at least seem to have some kind of working relationship uh and so clearly macron like a big part of his recent visit was was trying to persuade trump to stay in the iran deal and yet he still went on fox you know like yeah. doesn't necessarily seem like it's a substitute it seems like it's a, a booster almost yeah maybe our next topic touches on one that we discussed last week but we don't want to relitigate this saga of kanye west Instead, we want to focus on the reaction to one piece about West's recent actions and what that says about us as news consumers. So ta Coates wrote a several thousand words long piece in The Atlantic um, about Kanye West and fame um, and sort of draws a comparison to the way he's handled it and the way that Michael Jackson handled that, particularly for black celebrities and sort of the responsibility that comes when you are a black celebrity. As with everything that ta writes, uh, it was highly anticipated and the sort of thing that you just drop everything and read. What I thought was really interesting, you know, conversations about what's been happening with Kanye West, there have been a ton of things written about it. There's been a ton of Twitter commentary. And I noticed, particularly on Twitter, these sort of proclamations about Ta-Nehisi's piece, um, that this was the definitive piece, this was the only piece that you needed to read, that you should drop everything, read this, and ignore the rest as noise. Tanahasi's piece was fantastic, and we don't deserve him. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was an interesting commentary on the way that we sort of narrow our viewpoint um, of something in in that we suggest people literally ignore other voices. And I wonder, uh, what are we missing? And whose voices in particular, um, specifically from black writers, um, people who are, don't have the same sort of platform that Tanahasi has, um, what are we missing? Because we're just waiting for this one writer to write one piece, and then that is kind of the word and that's it. I think it's impossible to talk about this without mentioning specifically the reaction of white liberals who love what ta writes, even when it is incredibly challenging to their worldview, uh, not to single him out. But Michael Barbaro, the host of The New York Times' is The Daily, wrote, this is the single most powerful and devastating piece of essay writing I've read in ages about ta piece. And that reaction, again, not to single him out, but it exemplifies the sort of exuberant praise that greets seemingly every piece of big writing that ta does. Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of replicated with a lot of writing on sort of these big political moments or big cultural moments. I remember uh, reading on Instagram, I, I think one of the best sort of critiques that I read it was about Kanye West and also about Childish Gambino's new video was in somebody's Instagram. Like someone posted a photo on Instagram and like wrote this very long thing. And I just wonder, like, there are voices like that um, that you are not even looking for if all you're doing is waiting for your one favorite writer, rightfully everyone's favorite writer. But if you're just looking for this one piece to read that and then you use that to shape your view of what is a really broad and controversial topic, any topic really, 
as opposed to doing what we ought to do, particularly those of us who work in media, which is read everything we can find. Yeah, I do think that like it is a bit of a Twitter trope, right, to look for the the one definitive take on something. I mean, social media is so noisy and there's such a proliferation of content that there is this, I think, general kind of tendency for some people to say, this is the only thing you need to read. This is the the one take. But I do think there's a a deeper structural point here to Alex's point, um, which is I think that writers who kind of critique power structures, be they about race relations, be they about capitalism, be they about, you know, any other kind of mode of of, of power in, in America are pretty rare, right? Compared to voices who are on the sort of like never Trump conservative side of the spectrum, who seem to be you know, to a penny. There are so many that you could name in mainstream outlets. Um, and I think what that does is it creates a situation where those writers who are critiquing modes of power are seen as the defining kind of take on that way of thinking, whereas actually they should really be a sort of door into this huge contested world of different ways of critiquing different types of power, disagreements between people who share a kind of common ideological basis, but might agree virulently, for example, on the cultural significance of Kanye West in a particular moment or, or something. I think that on the on the kind of center right, we're really now habituated to having that kind of discussion. On Tuesday, I read, uh, obviously, Barry Weiss's piece in the New York Times about the intellectual dark web. Uh, Jonah Goldberg wrote this um, response to it in the National Review saying, I like Barry Weiss and I think she's a good writer, but I thought she was kind of wrong about this in some respects. We don't really, I think, get that on on the left or in that kind of structural criticism zone, whatever you want to call it. You don't get that kind of discourse, that back and forth. And that discourse is how those ideas, I think, take a seed in the culture. And so I do think, you know, in addition to it just being a kind of Twitter trope to narrow perspective on something down to one defining take, I do think there's something kind of culturally dangerous about about limiting ourselves to one voice coming from a particular you know position on, on that side of things. Well, and it seems like on the issue of race, there is this tendency, um, again, especially among white people, to look to Ta-Nehisi to give us answers about things. Alex, to your point about the limiting of scope that that provides, it also it marginalizes voices of younger or less established writers. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's obviously a huge platform that he has earned. But when something like Kanye West happens, when something like a controversial music video happens, when anything happens, if you consider, like, who do we look to? To your point, John, about, you know, these writers being doors, sort of a starting point, I think that's kind of a good way to think about um, as opposed to thinking about anything that ta writes as, like, the first and last thing you should read, thinking about it as, if you're entering the conversation right now, you should read this. And then from there, you sort of branch out and, and look for, uh, you know, differing perspectives in all kinds of places, including from people who don't have the Atlantic and don't have the name. I mean, that we don't do that sort of slows, I think, black women and other women of color uh, from reaching the same sort of prestige. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to Meg for her dispatch from the front lines of the battle for local news. And thanks to my colleagues, Alex and John, for being here to talk things over. You can check out all the great content we've got up at CJR.org, and we'll see you next week.